Well, I haven't met most of you. Uh, my name is Young, pastor at New Life. Um, I think last year, uh, one of the f- new first years mentioned that it was a little bit intimidating coming into New Life because they felt like a uh, year seven coming back into high school for the first time after having been, you know, king of high school for uh, the last year. Hopefully, you guys don't feel that way. Um, I think a lot of us older guys as well, if they approach such a huge horde of people, you know, it might be a little bit intimidating as well. So whether, uh, whether or not you end up here or at Vision KM, um, hopefully you guys do take it upon yourselves to get to know a few people as well. And we'll try our best to welcome you. Uh, we've got Christmas service coming up this Saturday as well um, at 10 a.m., similar to the service time here. Uh, do continue to invite uh, your friends and your family, those that uh, might have come along last week as well, uh, to our picnic. Um, this will be a great opportunity for that. Now, before we get into the uh, sermon, how about I pray for us? And then we'll get straight into it. Uh, Father, what an amazing uh, service so far. Uh, just to sing of your praises and just to sing uh, adoration to your son, who we know is coming back. We look forward to that return. We look forward to your kingdom uh, continuing to expand throughout this earth. And we look forward to the inauguration of his kingdom um, on that day that he returns, the consummation. Uh, We look forward to that, Lord, because we see just uh, what this world has become and where this world is headed. But at the same time, we see signs of hope everywhere. Uh, We see signs of hope even within uh, the four walls of our church as we look to the fellowship that's growing here, uh, the welcoming nature and the a missional spirit that is uh, upon new life, God. I pray that you will continue to increase these things upon us, God, that we be able to receive your spirit and that we be able to uh, speak of your good word, your good news of grace to a listening world. Lord, even as we think about these things, uh, we have growing anxiety in our hearts as we look towards the growing number of cases, as we look towards uh, international travel or as we look towards family and friends overseas. As we think about our lives, God, uh, help us, Lord, to place these anxieties aside and, in fact, to give them to you, Lord, because you care for us. Uh, You call upon us to cast our anxieties upon you um, so that you can take care of them, Uh, reminding us, Lord, that you are in charge and that you have great strength and you have a great plan for us. It's this plan that we trust in as we look to you, God. Help us, Lord, not to make our own plans. Help us, Lord, not to... Uh, build up our own empires here, but to instead build up your kingdom, recognizing, Lord, that this is the only thing that will stand uh, the test of time. We look to you now and the word that's everlasting. Uh, We know, Lord, that even as uh, the grass withers and the flowers fade, that your word will last forever, and so we look to your word now. Um, We pray, Lord, that as the word is preached, that we will be able to hear your word in a fresh way, just hearing of your goodness, your faithfulness throughout the generations and for us as well, God. Be with us, give us great wisdom, help us, Lord, to hear you well and to love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Last week, if you were here, we had our Super Sunday lunch. We had uh, a picnic where a bunch of people came and I was holding my baby, Jonas. You know, some of you guys that are new, you you might not know, Um, I have a baby in that room over there. And a number of you mentioned how similar uh, baby Jonas looks to me. You know, a number of you mentioned how much he takes after me, though I myself see a lot of Bora in him as well. Uh, I have to acknowledge that we do look quite similar. 
<laughs> I can't help but see it myself when I stand in the mirror and I'm holding him, and I'm like doing a double take, you know? Uh, it looks like we did a face swap. Um, he also looks a lot like my dad, especially when he's sleeping. You know, they look so similar. I can't believe it. Um, and it kind of just makes sense. You know, our children end up taking after us. Our children end up looking and acting very similarly to us. You know, some of you guys that have children know they're just like us in so many ways. And you guys who don't have children, you might not want to admit it, but you exhibit traits of your parents already in a lot of different ways that you don't want to acknowledge and sometimes that you do want to acknowledge. You look like them in ways that are sometimes very welcome and sometimes, unfortunately, not so welcome. Now, similarly, in the Bible, uh, we see these patterns of behavior. We see traits that people exhibit generation upon generation. We see the children of people that have come along and we see the way that they act very similarly to their fathers and mothers before them. But we also see a lot of similar themes throughout the Bible. They continue to arise all throughout the Bible. Here are some themes that we've seen previously through the sermon series so far, through Christmas together. So humans are relational beings. You know, we saw that all throughout the weeks, but especially in week one, as we looked at the first man and the first woman. We've seen that a humanistic approach to unity often results in violence of some sort, whether through oppression, whether through trying to assimilate people into their own culture, whatever it might be, and that true unity is found in Jesus alone. And we saw last week that God blesses us so that we can be blessings to the rest of humanity. These are some of the themes that we visited. And we saw last week how Abram did not carry out this last point. He was not a blessing to the people of the land. He failed to bring blessings upon the people of the land, notably bringing curses instead to these people by putting Egypt into unintentional sin, by bringing his sin into a communal setting. And as a result, we also saw how the Lord doubled down on his promises of blessings to Abram. Now at the same time, what we read uh, towards the end of the chapter, we didn't, you know, we didn't uh, talk about it too much, but God forewarns Abram that his descendants will be strangers in a foreign land at the end of that chapter last week enslaved and oppressed for 400 years, but that judgment will come upon that nation. And we didn't read together how this plays out either, but perhaps this might be a familiar story to you, even if you're not super well-versed in the Bible or even if you're not a Christian. This takes place through Moses' story in Egypt, in the book of Exodus. You know, a lot of you guys know this, right? In Exodus, we read of how Pharaoh enslaves and oppresses the Israelites, looking even to kill all of the newborn boys for fear of his power being taken. He, could, he wants to commit mass genocide upon all the boys of the Israelites. And Moses, however, he escapes that kind of judgment and he grows up in Pharaoh's household before, again, he feels his life being threatened. And then we see how he flees to a foreign land and he remains there until he can return safely after those that are looking to kill him have died. So keep these things in the back of your mind. You know, we'll revisit some of these things as well. Here in 1 Kings, we very much see a continuation of some of the themes that we've observed thus far. So we see unity getting disrupted as the kingdom of Israel splits. This is the moment that the kingdom of Israel splits. It becomes the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom of Israel. The way that the king seeks to bring unity under his rule, the new king, 
is through oppression. He tries to oppress his people. And we see the pride and folly of man bringing about this disunity. Sin continues to enter the communal setting. And though apart, we then see these two kingdoms go through very similar things. They exhibit very similar themes of idolatry and patterns of unfaithfulness to God. And both kingdoms long for a savior. The Messiah that this uh, promise-keeping God said would come all the way back in the first pages of Genesis. Before we get there though, let's take a look at what leads to the kingdom split. So we read together in 1 Kings 12 about this king, Rehoboam, whom you may have never heard of before. But the end of 1 Kings 11 tells us about someone that's familiar to most of us. Once again, even if you're not super well-versed in the Bible, his dad is Solomon. If you only peripherally know Solomon's story, you might wonder how things got so bad because you hear about how great Solomon was a lot of the time. This is the guy who became king in his early 20s. You know, this is our median age here at New Life. One of you could be king, okay? When he could ask for anything, he asked God for wisdom of all things. Like, imagine God coming to you at this point in your life, if you're in your early 20s. If not, look back to your early 20s. At that age, what would we be asking for? We might be praying for good marks, a new job, a relationship. I think that's what I was praying for back at that age. And as Solomon's story goes on, well, even though he asked for wisdom, we see that he begins to participate in this idolatry and he breaks the covenant with God again and again. So last week we saw this unilateral nature when it came to Abram's covenant, when it came to God's covenant with Abram. One-way blessings. Covenant, like no expectation from Abram to keep the covenant. God will just bless Abram no matter what. But the covenant with Solomon is bilateral. There's expectation placed on him and unfortunately, Solomon uses his God-given wisdom in some very positive but some very negative ways as well. Okay, let's talk about that real quick. So positively, he did apply his wisdom to know scripture better. He actually starts off on the right foot. He starts getting to know scripture a little better. He obeys God at first, keeps his commandments. He decides to judge and rule the kingdom wisely and fairly. You know that story of, I'm gonna cut your baby in two. It doesn't sound great out of context, but he you know, talks about that and he gets the people to admit whose baby it really is. He builds the temple for worship as well. Some really positive things come out of his kingship. He was organized, he was wise, he was successful in the way that he ruled the kingdom. Negatively, he allowed his ambition to start to outstrip his humility. You know, a lot of wise people do this. It's to the point that he begins to allow his pride to lead him into idolatry. He sought after his own glory rather than God's, turning his back on God's commands in order to amass more power for himself. And you see this come up again and again. He starts getting horses, which is forbidden uh, in God's law, to get more power and security for himself. He partners with foreign nations in order to accumulate this power. And he also takes for himself an incredible number of women as wives who introduce him to their own gods. 
All these foreign women he brings into his household, marries them all, and perhaps beneath the surface, he wasn't all that different from 20-year-old us. His desires weren't too far apart. So in the end, Solomon's wisdom amounted to him being no better than a fool in his own kingdom. And we see the way that his unchecked ambition, his propensity towards sensuality, ruins him. He not only tolerates, but he begins to lead the people into idolatry himself because he openly worships the gods of his wives. He legitimizes this practice of idolatry that was forbidden by God. Like imagine if I just started worshiping some random God in front of you. You know, well, Pastor Young's doing it, why can't I do it? You know, we do this with our politicians, we do this already with our leaders, and this is what happens with the king at this time. He brought sin into the communal setting as king. Now we see the way that Solomon transforms more and more as this story goes on, becoming at first unrecognizable from his former appearance of wisdom. Becomes unrecognizable until he becomes all too familiar. Like I've seen this somewhere before. Exodus 1.11 reads, so the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. In a few chapters earlier, 1 Kings 9, Solomon built all the storage cities, the chariot cities, the, ca the cavalry cities, and whatever he desired to build in Jerusalem, Lebanon, or anywhere else in the land of his dominion. You know, we see some repetition there of supply cities. How did Solomon build whatever he desired to build? He achieved this by oppressing his own people, setting taskmasters over them and forcing them into labor. In other words, enslaving and oppressing the people of God, just as the Lord foretold to Abram about Pharaoh. And as Solomon descends further and further into this idolatry, into this self-glorification, this extremely capable man, Jeroboam, appears on the scene raised up in Solomon's own backyard, just like Moses was raised up in Pharaoh's household, until the Lord speaks through the prophet Ahijah to say that Jeroboam will take the kingdom from the house of Solomon for his idolatry. And Solomon can't take it. Exodus 2, when Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. 1 Kings 11, therefore Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but he fled to Egypt, to King Shishak of Egypt, where he remained until Solomon's death. So this news doesn't cause him to repent, but instead, like Pharaoh before him, Solomon seeks to kill the one that God has raised up to take power from him, thinking, maybe I can circumvent this whole situation. Maybe I can still keep power, causing Jeroboam to flee to a foreign land just like Moses. And the irony is that this foreign land of safety for Jeroboam is Egypt, where Egypt was once an enemy for Israel. Now Israel finds herself in the position of oppressor. Sin has this transformative effect, twisting us further and further until we commit atrocities that were historically done to us. Like how often do we see this? All throughout human history. You know, the people that are hurt most continue to perpetuate this hurt throughout their lives. 
Now the consequences that visit Israel are immense. So Solomon's son will lose 10 out of the 12 tribes from his kingdom and Jeroboam will rule over them. The kingdom will never see unity or comparable power ever again. Never again. But I must remind you, just like I did last week, God's faithfulness is on display even here because he refuses to destroy the kingdom completely, even in the face of all this idolatry, allowing Rehoboam to rule even over this reduced kingdom. We've seen this before with Abram. Even through Abram's sin, God renews his commitments to his promises. Why? Why does he do this? God keeps his promises despite the thoughts and actions of those that he makes promises to. Because his faithfulness is not necessarily just to us. His faithfulness is first to the consistency of his own character. He's the most consistent one. He bleeds mercy and justice and grace no matter what. No matter what he does, no matter what he's faced with, this is what he does. Even after the kingdom split, even after idolatry and the fall of the nation, he continues to warn his people through the prophets. He keeps telling them, I'm not going to do this anymore, but he does it. He keeps warning the people through the prophets, giving them a way back to him. Now, back to our chapter today, back to Rehoboam. 1 Kings 12, 4 to 6. These are the people talking to him. Your father made our yoke harsh. You, therefore, lighten your father's harsh service and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam replied, go away for three days and then return to me. So the people left. Then King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon when he was alive, asking, how do you advise me to respond to this people? Rehoboam, he doesn't even have like a little bit of his father's political skill. He never asked for wisdom, right? But he certainly has his pride and his desire for self-glorification. These are traits that are passed down, right? Though the people requested that the oppressive forced labor be scaled back just a little bit in exchange for the continued servitude. Can you imagine this? Like just, just back off a little bit and we'll continue serving you. And though the elders who had served Solomon advised him to meet the people's demands, what does he do? There isn't even a hint of repentance on Rehoboam's part of making things right for the people that dad oppressed. Does this sound familiar? So his idea of unity is to rule the land with an iron fist, to use power and intimidation. So he takes the advice of other young men around him his peers who are just as insecure as he is, who are just as unwise as he is. And so he threatens the people, talking about how he's better than dad, about how much bigger he is than dad. But as we read, it's a terrible miscalculation, and the people turn from him. And Rehoboam, he tries to double down, thinking, maybe if I really intimidate them, it'll work. So he sends the taskmaster in charge of forced labor throughout all of Solomon's rule. This is the guy who literally forced the people into labor. He's not gonna be a welcome face and he greatly underestimates the people's anger until the taskmaster is stoned to death and Rehoboam escapes. 
realizing he's probably about to die. Now, up till this point, when Jeroboam, when he takes over, it seems like things will be okay again. This is the guy that the Lord raised up, Jeroboam. He's kind of in the type of Moses. It seems like things will be okay. After all, Jeroboam, he's been handed the keys to the kingdom by God, with God placing him in power over 10 out of the 12 tribes. It's a lot of tribes. He symbolically becomes like Moses as the story is played out in such a similar way with Moses and Pharaoh. Then things go wrong very quickly. Like you know the story won't be happy when one of the subtitles in the chapter is describing the idolatry of the newly crowned king. And Jeroboam, he goes on to refuse to acknowledge what God has done for him. Instead, he decides to get some advice from the wrong people, just like his counterpart, and he begins an alternative religion. He starts up something new. Like with some people, the Bible, it at least takes a few pages before they go into such abject sin, but it happens literally a few sentences later. The exact thing that Solomon was condemned for is the exact thing that Jeroboam carries out. How dense must you be? Power and riches don't necessarily corrupt character, but they sure do amplify the things that already exist. Like once you find yourself in a position of power, the things that are beneath the surface in your heart, they start to actually come to the surface, just like it did with Jeroboam. He sees his new military, his new economic power, and he starts to become really defensive. He starts to want to clutch these things and hang on to them. He doesn't want to lose even a little bit. And he thinks to himself, I know that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem, but if the people pilgrimage back to Jerusalem, where their old king, Rehoboam, is, they might return their allegiance to him, and I'll lose the people once again. We've seen fear like this before. Last week in Abram's story, we saw how he acted in fear, throwing his wife into danger. In Pharaoh's story and in Solomon's story as well, we've seen this fear. It's amazing how often a lack of faith plays out as fear. If you've ever felt fearful, ask yourself why. Why is that the case? Surely for Jeroboam, the God who brought him to power can help him to hang on to this power as well, if only he'll worship him. God promised him a kingdom that's going to last throughout the generations if he keeps his commandments. Once again, bilateral covenant right there. But Jeroboam, he takes matters into his own hands and tries to secure the kingdom's future himself. He acts in what he thinks is a wise way. And so the people now live apart. They're divided in their allegiances to this earthly king as divided as they are in their hearts towards the God of their ancestors. Now, this story might not be super familiar to you, but if you continue on through the book of Kings, reading through their records in Israel and in the kingdom of Judah, it presents a bleak picture. A lot of uh, this, the chapters that come, they're some of the most depressing chapters in the Bible. You read about how throughout the generations they live in idolatry, Things get bad enough that they turn back to the Lord. They seem to be repenting. As, as soon as things get good, they turn back to their old ways. But in the background, there's this continued whisper. 
There's this thread that's persisted all the way from the opening pages of Genesis. Remember this. There's a Messiah that's still to come. It's not this new king that's leading the people into idolatry. It's not this new king that's bringing new economic security. No, there's a savior that's been promised by a promise-keeping God. The sinful hearts of our ancestors serve to magnify the graciousness and the covenant-keeping nature of this great God. And though apart, the people anticipate, they continue to long together for this Messiah. And Jesus will come. Perhaps you're familiar with this story because it sounds so familiar. Later on in the Gospels, we read about how King Herod hears of this child who's been born King of the Jews. And in fear, he orders that all the boys around the age that Jesus will be in the area that he was born be massacred. Like Pharaoh and like Solomon before him, he reacts in fear. But like Moses and Jeroboam, Jesus' parents flee with Jesus to Egypt, remaining there until King Herod dies. And it's a familiar story once again that the people look to as they anticipate the coming of the Savior. But the people of their time, they don't know about the story yet. But unlike those who prefigured him, who came before him, Jesus is the true Messiah, the Son of God born to this world, God among us, Emmanuel. Isaiah 9 reads, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We'll talk more about this Jesus at Christmas, and I invite you to join us then. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, though the earthly kingdoms rage, though all sorts of people seek power in our midst, and though anxiety grips our hearts, and we seek to secure our future for ourselves, and we know that you are above it all, and we know that you have a mighty plan for us. Just like biblical history played out in front of us, just as your son Jesus was born, we know that he's coming again. And we know that when he comes, we will have safety and security for all of eternity in the new Jerusalem. Lord, we look forward to that day. We look forward with the psalm writers. We look forward with the people of the Bible. We look forward with our brothers and sisters here. We're looking forward to the day when there will be no more tears, no more night, there'll be no more weeping, but there'll only be joy in your presence. We know that we can only trust in you, and we know, Lord, that you're faithful, not only to us, who are like the shifting sands blown by the wind, but you're faithful to your own personality, to your own character, you never change. We thank you, Lord, that you never change. We thank you, Lord, that you're a promise-keeping God. You say in Jeremiah, look, the days are coming 
when I will fulfill the good promise that I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You say that in those days and at that time, you will cause a righteous branch to sprout up for David, and he will administer justice and righteousness in the land. We know that in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is what shall be named, the Lord is our righteousness. That's what we desire for our church here at New Life, that we will declare your righteousness before your people because we've been made righteous by your grace. We turn to you as we look forward to this Saturday. We turn to the birth of your son Jesus and the coming again of his kingdom. Help us, Lord, to be future-focused in that way. Help us, Lord, to look to your plan and to find security in our hearts. May we trust in you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.